Well, it's uh, Wednesday again, and you know what that means. It's time for our midweek service. And so uh, I appreciate you tuning in and watching this. And um, again, I pray for you and pray that God blesses you and pray that God uses this so that your soul is fed and well-nourished and strengthened and that maturity takes place in your life. And with that maturity, you will take what God blesses you with. Hopefully this will be one of those things and uh, you'll share it with somebody else. And you might want to point somebody else to uh, watch this video and uh, you may want to encourage them to do it or maybe even watch it with them and uh, talk to them. You can pause it every once in a while. Don't you wish you could do that on Sunday mornings during church? But you could pause it every once in a while and talk about something that I read or something I quoted or something that I said. And you can discuss it a little bit and make things uh, clear. I feel like sometimes when I'm doing all the talking, I make, I make things, as they say, clear as mud. And I don't want to do that. But you could help somebody else kind of get things cleared up and know what to do. You'd have a chance to pray together and have a chance maybe even to uh, do some type of ministry or outreach together. That's certainly a part of what we want to do. And you're a big part of that. And so this doesn't take a great number of people doing this. Movements of God, whether they're in a church or in society, are usually started by a very, very small number, sometimes just one person. And so I would ask you to maybe pray this prayer. Dear Lord, I want to be the one at Graceway. I want to be the one in Oklahoma City or wherever you live. And uh, stand up and be that one. It is said that D.L. Moody, he was a very uh, common uneducated man who became a great evangelist for God on two, shook two continents for Christ. And uh, he would butcher the king's English and, um, you know, people made fun of him for that. But a lot of people got saved because of him. And it's said that at one point in his Christian life, early on, someone said to him, the world has yet to see what God will do with someone totally yielded to him. And Mr. Moody said, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. Now, what did he do? Immediately book a, a cruise for England and say, I'm going to go over and, and uh, really tell those people in Europe about Christ. I, I don't think it ever entered his mind that he would do that. You know what he first started doing? One of his earliest ministries was to go into inner city Chicago, where he lived, and to set up what he called a Sunday school, or maybe a Sabbath school, I'm not exactly sure, uh, for underprivileged Chicago children. They'd been working in factories. They didn't know how to read or write. Nobody really cared about them much. Their parents were drunk and um, just a horrible situation. And you know what he would do? He would gather as many of them as he could, started off small, but he would teach them to read and write. That's why it was called a Sunday school. And in learning to read, they would learn to read from the Bible. That's why some of you ought to consider being a part of ESL, English as a Second Language, because when you do that, as you teach somebody who maybe only speaks Spanish how to speak English, you can show them from the Word of God. It's a great way to present the gospel. And uh, Mr. Moody started doing that, and the numbers started growing and growing and growing because these children were responding to somebody who cared about them. 
and a lot of them got saved. And that's what started his ministry. Later he started preaching. They started preaching in churches. Then he was preaching what we used to call crusades and all of this kind of stuff with hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people coming to know Christ as their Savior and Lord through him. And so I pray that as you uh, think about these things, whether anyone else does or not, you be the guy, you be the person and say, Lord, by the grace of God, I want to be that person. And then whatever he opens up for you to do, do it. And it may not be all that impressive. It may not be even what you really want to do. But the Bible says, therefore, as we have opportunity, we are to do good. And so take the opportunity God gives you because uh, that's what you're ready for. That's what you're accountable for. And that's what you are probably capable of at one point. And as you grow deeper in your walk with God, trust God as the, as the message and walk with God grows deeper, then God will make it bro, grow broader. Okay? So we're in Psalm 84 now. And um, we're going to be looking at the first four verses. And um, Psalm 84, what is this about? Well, according to the superscription, this is a psalm written by the sons of Korah. Well, I thought they were all written by David. You know, well, you would be wrong about that. Some of them existed before David. Even Moses wrote some. And some of them were written even after David. David wrote a good portion of them. This is one that he didn't write. This is one written by the sons of Korah. Korah were a special group of Levites. Okay? To the sons of Korah, uh, by the sons of Korah, referring to the Levitical choir comprised of the descendants of Korah. They had been appointed by David to serve in the temple as gatekeepers and musicians, both guards and singers, right? And thus, this psalm was written either by or for Korah's descendants, and as one of the 11 psalms ascribed to the sons of Korah, it is the first of four such psalms that occur in uh, this section of psalms. So um, it's to be sung according to the Giddith, which most probably is a guitar-like harp associated with Gath in Philistia. By the way, Gath and Philistia, that's where Goliath came from. And out of that, there came this Giddith, a guitar-like harp, that they would use. And you thought a guitar was something modern. You thought that modern worship leaders using a guitar, that that was something liberal, rebellious, or whatever. No, it's been going on for a long, 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 long time. And that's the kind of the background of this particular psalm. So open your Bible, Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your tabernacle, uh, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God... Blessed are those who dwell in your house. 
they will be praising you. Selah. So when he says Selah, we're going to Selah. We're going to stop and we're going to think about that. It's kind of what that word means. Pause. Reflect on this. Uh, uh, one guy, I was reading in uh, what he said about Selah, and he says that uh, it would be phrased like this. What do you think about that? That's a pretty good way of looking at that. Here's a guy who loves the temple. He loves being in the presence of the Lord. And uh, then he talks about praising the Lord continually. And then Selah, what do you think about that? I think he's weird. Don't you? I think he's an oddball. I think he is peculiar. But after all, didn't the New Testament call us the peculiar people of God? We are strange. We are different. And we don't fit in. We are aliens. We are pilgrims in this world. We're just passing through. And we were never called to make the world like us. Now, we're not to be unlikable or rude or anything like that. We're not to be hostile toward them. In fact, the Bible says that we are to pray for our enemies and we're to bless those who curse us. And in fact, we're told in both the Old and New Testament, if our enemy is hungry, what are we supposed to do? Spit on him? No, we're supposed to feed him. If he's thirsty, we're supposed to give him something to drink. And if he doesn't have proper clothing, we're supposed to uh, clothe him. And that heaps coals of fire on his head. And um, we'll let the Lord deal with that. The coals may bring conviction or they may bring condemnation. We don't know, but that's not really our place to know, is it? We are to be the people of God and we are to be the kind of people that are boldly identified as the people of God. Clearly identified. Now, I'm not against Christian t-shirts, but some of you, the boldest thing you've ever done is to wear a Christian t-shirt. You need to step it up. You need to step it up a little bit. Some of you come to church and it's almost like you are drugged to church. And then when you come in here, you act decently enough, but it's easy to tell that your heart's not really in it, that you don't really care. And uh, you, you need to Get that right with God. That's wrong. Some of you hate church. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's impossible. Impossible. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. And to have the love of Jesus in my life means I'm going to love what Jesus loves. Now, there's a big problem that we have today. There are a lot of people who claim to love Jesus, but they don't love what Jesus loves. Something's horribly wrong with that situation. And so when we read what this psalmist says, he's a weirdo. He's a freak. But he's probably walking in the joy of the Lord, isn't he? He's probably pleasing God. And so when you and I think about this, it used to be popular back in the hippie days to call someone who got saved and is on fire for the Lord a Jesus freak. Yeah, they're a freak, but they're a freak for Jesus. That means they're right, to just put it mildly. They're right. They're right. We think about what the Apostle Paul said. He said that I am a fool for Christ's sake. Well, I guess a good question would be this. Whose fool are you? Because if you're not a fool for Christ, you're a fool for somebody. You're a fool for the devil, a fool for the enemy. 
And uh, he's going to show that foolishness eventually. And you're going to see what a fool you were to follow after him. And you're going to see how wise it would have been had you followed after Christ. So this guy is, is weird, but he's weird in a good way, weird in the right way. He loves the temple and he loves the Lord. And uh, he's going to go on and make those kind of statements, outlandish statements on and on and on and on through this particular psalm. But as we talk about this, it uh, strikes me that he is talking about worship and having a worshipful heart and a worshipful attitude. Now, let's say what worship is not. Worship is not sitting quietly and hearing angels sing all over us. It kind of looks that way on TV sometimes, doesn't it? Or in old religious movies. You know, I used to kind of hate those things and, and what they kind of, the way they presented everything. Uh, it's not just a cathedral with a pipe organ playing or something like that. That's not what the psalmist talks about when he talks about worship. He also uh, is not really talking about being at the right place at the right time. Is it easier to worship in the temple with all of the furnishings and all of the trappings and everything that is there and with the other people that are there as well? Um, yeah, yeah, it, it probably is. Probably is easier to worship, but it's not the only place to worship. The people of God were not only to worship on the days when they went to the temple, which if you didn't live in Jerusalem, it, it might be few and far between. You go there on Passover and a few other things, but it was a hard trip. It was an expensive trip. It was a dangerous trip to some degree. And uh, so you didn't just worship when you went to the temple. That's why they set up synagogues in their local communities. They needed a local body to worship with, and they needed that time to get together and to sing. They needed that time to get together and pray. They needed that time to get together and to hear the word of the Lord. They needed that time to refocus and to refresh themselves. Worship is something that should be in our lives every single day and all during the day. We should live our lives as an act of worship unto the Lord. Um, a landlord I had in Stillwater, he used to uh, witness to everybody that would come into his office. I mean, literally, I watched him uh, do it so many times. And they would come in and he would talk to them about houses and apartments he had available and different things like that. And then he would always say, but before you go, I need to tell you about something. And he would tell them that um, they need to be saved because they're sinners and Jesus is the only way to salvation. And that uh, you don't try to get saved by doing good things for the Lord. You get saved and then you do good things as a way of saying thank you to the Lord. You know what he was saying? Live a life of worship. Everything I do, if I help somebody, if I have a chance to say a good word about the Lord, if I have a chance to present the gospel, I do that not out of a sense of obligation. I do that out of a sense of thankfulness, of worship to the Lord. See the difference? When the Bible says something like, pray without ceasing. Oh, that sounds about like the most boring thing I've ever heard. Because I uh, think about when um, I'm in church sometimes and somebody prays. You ever get bored? Ever have your mind wander? 
It's a natural, normal thing. It's not good. It's not right. It's not acceptable. It's wrong and it's sin. Be clear about that. But that's just what we do. Well, what if you heard a prayer that was without ceasing? I mean, if the Bible says pray without ceasing, I'm sure glad it doesn't say listen to somebody else pray without ceasing, right? But it commands us to pray without ceasing. How do I pray without ceasing? It means wherever I am in life. Let's say that I get up in the morning and I start off my day with a time of prayer. Is that wrong? No, that's a good thing. But should that be the only time I pray during the day? Well, at that point, uh, that's when we would say that would be wrong. You're supposed to pray all during the day. And there are times when things come up and you are driving down the street and there's somebody that pulls in front of you and uh, after you uh, honk the horn and call them an idiot, maybe you ought to consider praying for them. Maybe there's something going on in their life you don't know about. Would it matter if they were just a jerk or if they were trying to get their wife who's in labor to a hospital? Ah, oh, well, if I'd only known. And we say things like that all the time. Well, I didn't know that. Well, let's act like we do and let's give other people the benefit of the doubt. That would be the first word of exhortation. But the other thing is uh, to say this. Why don't you pray for them? Because if they are a jerk, they need prayer. And if they're not obeying the traffic laws on purpose, they need prayer. And it'd be a good thing to pray for them. Maybe you're driving along and you see somebody and the bumper sticker that they have on their car is disgusting and uh, dirty. And I mean, it just is repulsive to you as a child of God. Well, maybe give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it's not their car. Maybe they're borrowing the car and uh, they needed it to take their pregnant wife to the hospital. And so they're borrowing that car and it's got that bumper sticker. I mean, kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. That'll do your heart good and you won't be so ugly and mad and cynical and all of that about other people. It'll make your life more joyful. And then the second thing is, even if they are that gross, ugly, vile, disgusting person, don't get upset with them. They're dead in trespasses and sin. What is wrong with us that we get upset with lost people when they act like lost people? Such were some of you, Paul says. Be a good time to pray for them. Wouldn't you want somebody to pray for you when you were lost? Pray for them. Do that for them. And so as you go through your day, if there's a Christian you work with and then you hear them say a four-letter word that disappoints you, just stop and think about this. God knows your heart. And you've done far worse in your heart, and he still loves you. You still need to love them. Is it okay to be disappointed in them? Yeah, but you don't have to act like it. If you have a good enough relationship with them, you might say something to them about that. But don't just rush in where angels fear to tread. Your opinion's not always wanted and not always received. And sometimes by shooting off your mouth, even if you're right, by shooting off your mouth, you may do more harm than good. There's a time and a place for everything, isn't there? And uh, here's what somebody said that has really struck me. Let your words be no stronger than your relationship. Let your words be no stronger than your relationship. In other words, if you don't have a strong relationship with them, don't use strong words. It's not going to go well. 
develop a relationship with them so that you can use strong words with them. But if you just rush in using strong words, they're going to take that as nothing but criticism and condemnation, and they're probably not going to listen to you anymore, and they may turn around with both guns and point out your sins, which might even be worse. You didn't notice that they noticed, and they were watching, so be careful with that. But we can take situations all through the day in life and turn them into prayer, turn them into praise, turn them into concerns, turn them into thanksgiving. You know, there are lots of things we can do. I was putting gas in my car one time and uh, thinking about the price I was paying and it just kind of irked me until I thought about this. Yeah, but I can pay for it. I ought to be thanking God that I can pay for it instead of griping about the high price of it. Then I got to thinking about everything it took to put those gallons of gas in that particular uh, gas pump, that tank, to put into my gas tank. Wow, a lot of people were involved. There's refining and transportation and all kinds of stuff that's there. The place of business where they're selling it has to be profitable enough to keep selling it or it wouldn't even be open. I got to thinking about all of that and thanking God for all of those things. And then I got into my truck and drove off and I was a little happier than I was when I saw the price on the pump. What am, I, what am I saying about that? We can take all of those situations and we can turn them into times of worship. It's not just tied to a place. It's not just tied to a time period. It's not just, you know, tied to when I feel like it or anything. This is something we're supposed to do um, all the time. So point number one, it's not the place it's the person. And notice as you read through verse 1, yeah, the tabernacle, the dwelling place, in other words, of the Lord, the temple, it's just beautiful. And um, man, I'm just beside myself, wanting to be there so bad, my soul even faints for the courts of the Lord, and my heart and my flesh cry out, uh-oh, it just changed. My flesh, my body, my heart, the real me, the center of being in me, my soul, in other words, cries out, not for the temple, not for the rituals, not for the people that are there, not for the fun that might be had if it's a particularly good feast day. It cries out for the living God. Hey, it's about a person, not a place. For every problem in your life, you don't need a thing, you don't need information, you need a person. And that person is, of course, Jesus Christ. And if you're not seeking after Jesus, then you're never going to find relief. You're never going to find power. You're never going to find the answers that you need. Worship is not about a place or a time or a feeling. It's about a person. And the psalmist brings us to that. It's okay to love the temple. It's okay to love coming to church. You should. It's okay to love the people that are here. You should love them. But your love for God, seeking after the person of God, is what really ought to happen. And his love for the building was really because of his love for God. I'm thinking about King David. David, the man after God's own heart. Do you remember him? He wanted to build a temple. Did you realize that? Some people don't. Solomon built the temple, but David wanted to. He really, really, really wanted to build a temple. 
In 1 Corinthians, blah, 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 not an unknown tongue, it's mine. 1 Chronicles 17, 1 through 5 says, Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan, probably the most spiritual man in Israel at that time, the one who confronted David about his sin, He says to Nathan, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. That same old tent that Moses built back in Exodus. Still in that. Still in that. Bothered David. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. And you know, we do that sometimes. Like David, we go to people that we kind of consider spiritual and we say, this is what I think I ought to do. And somehow when they say, yeah, do it, it's like God speaking to us. It's not. Let me prove it to you. Go on reading. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. You know, that news must have been very disappointing to David. David might be like some of us. Am I wrong for wanting to build the house? No, you're not wrong for wanting to build a temple, the house of God. That's a good thing. It's just not your place. And there are some of us in the church, there are things we would love to do. It's just one problem. God hasn't given us opportunity or the calling to do it. Doesn't mean it's wrong. I had a friend that said, I wish God would call me to preach. I would love to be a preacher of the gospel. Nothing wrong with the desire of his heart, just God didn't do it. He had something else for him to do. Skipping down uh, to verse 11. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, in other words, you're going to die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So God was saying, love me, walk with me. This tabernacle and the temple, David, that's not important. You have me, and I'll walk with you, and I am doing something. You want to build me a house? Good for you, David. But the truth of the matter is, I'm going to build for you a house kind of house did God ever build for David? He built him a house that in royal terms is called a dynasty. You've heard in England, the current royal family, they're the house of Windsor. And God said, I'm going to build a house of David and it's going to last forever. David, don't worry about building me a house. You've got blood on your hands. You've got too much to do to make sure Israel is established and protected, and he spent his life as a warrior fighting for the existence of the nation. But you're going to have a son, he's going to be a son of peace, and he'll build the temple. And you know, David, to his credit, he didn't pout. He got busy going ahead and collecting materials for his son to build a temple. You know what? If we can't do the work, we ought to make it easier for the people who do the work. We ought to make sure that their life is as uncluttered. We ought to make sure that their life is as peaceful and as easy that we might be able to let them concentrate on what God wants them to do. And we ought to pitch in and we'll do what we can, but understand that God doesn't have the same will for all of us except what he's expressed in the Bible. But he has different ways for us to carry out that will. Let me back up and say that again. I'm going to say it this way. God has one will for us 
to be ambassadors for Christ and bring in a harvest. Okay, that sounds better. But he has different ways for each of us to do it. Let's not get into competition, but let's live lives of worship and consider that all of us are working together in the way that God has equipped us and gifted us to reach other people for the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, it wasn't wrong, but worship is more than just having a building. It's about the relationship. David was a man after God's own heart. Number two, it's about abiding, not merely attending. All of a sudden, this guy that we said was a little weird anyway, he gets really weird, and he starts talking about birds. What do birds have to do with worship? Well, think about it. Even the sparrow has found a home. What home did the sparrow find, uh, son of Korah? He's speaking of in the temple. The sparrow built a nest, maybe even in the Holy of Holies. Can you think about that? Build a nest in there. And he gets to be in the Holy of Holies. He flies in there all the time, lays eggs, and does all that stuff, hatches them in the Holy of Holies. Well, this psalmist can't do that. And uh, back in those days, you and I could not do that. He goes on to say, and the swallow, another type of bird, a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts. May have been that one altar of bronze, may have been the altar in the Holy of Holies. It doesn't matter. The psalmist says, that's amazing. She builds a nest, lays eggs, and raises her young right there in the presence of God. Oh, I wish I could do that, is what he's saying. That's the whole idea. Oh, Lord of hosts, my king and my God. So the birds are mentioned that they come in and they build a home as close to the presence of God as you'll ever find on earth. And he says, oh, I wish I could do that. And there ought to be something inside of us that wishes that we could be in the manifest presence of God all the time. The truth of the matter is we are in the presence of God all the time because number one, he's everywhere. So that rules out you ever being in a place where he isn't. But second, he lives in you and you now are the temple. You now are the sanctuary. This building I'm in, this is not the sanctuary. The sanctuary is where God lives and God dwells and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so in a sense, we are the fulfillment of what the psalmist says about the birds. We do get to live in the presence of God all the time. But notice the laying of eggs. That's what the nest is for, laying the eggs so that mama bird can sit on them and so they'll hatch. And then after they hatch, she comes back and brings food for them kind of disgusting way of doing it, but uh, she does it and they grow up until they fly off. And that reminds me that the presence of God is not just for grown-ups. Worshiping God is not just for grown-ups. Can I just say, teach your children during the summer when they're not in children's church and as they grow older and too old for children's church, teach them to stand when the church stands. Teach them to pray when the church prays. You can start this when they're three years old. Teach them to listen when the word of God is being proclaimed. Teach them how to sit still. Teach them those things because you instill those things into their life. Just like the mama bird raising her young in the presence of God. You need to do that 
as well, and far too few were doing it. And so this psalmist is saying that it wasn't weird or foreign or unnatural. It was a normal thing for these birds to do this, and that's the way it ought to be for us to come to church. I invited my doctor to church, and he said, nah, you don't want the ceiling falling in. And I said, well, if it does, we'll replace it, but it'd be more important for you to come. And he just laughed and, and uh, pushed me out the door. It ought not be a foreign thing for you to come to church, for you to sing God's praises, for you to respond in shouts of joy or clapping your hands or any other expressions like that. It ought not be unnatural for you to love the word of God and the people of God. That is a normal thing for us. The nest was home for the babies. They didn't know anything else. And here we have the psalmist that actually envied the birds that were in the temple all the time all the time. It's about abiding. John 15 verse 4 says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus said, and you're the branches. You're just fruit holders. You need the life of God flowing through you from the vine, which is Jesus, the trunk, which is Jesus. Now listen to this. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Boy, that last phrase is so true. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, we're sure trying. We turn the church into entertainment centers and we do works of the flesh all over the place and then wonder why society gets more and more and more and more and more rotten. You know why? Because Jesus isn't doing it. Man is doing it, and we're so in awe of it, and we think it is so cool, and we try to pattern ourselves like it, and God's not within a million miles of it, as we say. In fact, think about this. Jesus tells us a gauge of how well <clears throat> we are abiding in him. Are you bearing fruit? Much fruit. If you're not, you're not abiding in him. Sorry, I didn't say that. That's what he said. Now, I didn't say you weren't saved. That certainly could be the case. If you're not bearing any fruit, then you're not saved. But if you're not bearing much fruit, as it says here, then you need to ask the question, why? And the answer to the question is, because you are not abiding in Christ like you think you are and like you proclaim to do it. So you've got some repenting to do and some fixing to do. And this psalmist said, I would love to abide in the temple because the birds really did abide there. The word abide means to make yourself at home in that. And some of us just aren't at home in the presence of God or with the Lord. In fact, we don't give it a second thought sometimes, or when we do, it's weird and it is awkward. And the psalmist says it shouldn't be that way. Last point, it's about praising, not merely participating. You know, you can come to church every time the doors are open and do everything that everybody else does in the church. It doesn't mean you're praising God. You're just participating. Blessed are those who dwell in you. They abide in you, right? Now, in the times of the sons of Korah, there were certain priests who just lived at the temple. Oh, this psalmist says, what a, what a great thing that would be if a person could be like the birds and just live in the temple in the presence of God. You know, we always kind of want to do that. We talk about certain parts of our life being mountaintop experiences. Well, you got to come down from the mountain into the valley where the people are and 
share those things sometimes. You can't live in the mountain, but uh, boy, be nice to, wouldn't it? That's what he's saying here. Oh, that would be wonderful. They will still be praising you. And so praise is not merely singing or reciting something. Praise is something that comes from the heart. It's a form of thankfulness. Thankfulness. It's expressed as a testimony, what God has done for me, not just when I was saved. I'm glad for your salvation testimony. But you know what I'm more interested in? What is your testimony now about God and how he is working in your life? And um, it's a witness of the existence and of the provision and of the goodness of God. And when you do that in front of a lost person, it gives you a chance to share the gospel. But when you do that in front of a saved person, it fills them with joy and hope and faith and expectation. That's why we ought to be sharing that more. And that's also why your flesh doesn't want to do it. That's also why the enemy doesn't want you to do it. And so when you come to church the next time you're in Sunday school and somebody says, anybody have a word of testimony about what God has done for them? Be ready to share because because if you're not doing that, it's not just your personality. You're doing the devil's work. Keep your mouth shut, the devil whispers in your ear. Keep your mouth shut, your flesh says. And the Spirit of God all the time is saying, look at all of the wonderful things I have done for you, in you, and through you. And we ought to be willing to share that. Why? Because somebody else might need it, and it gives glory and honor to God, which is what this is all about. So download the newsletter from gracewayokc.org and you go up and click the drop-down menu, look for events, and when you click on that, you will see a way to download the newsletter and be involved in things that are going on to see the prayer request and also to uh, pray for events that are happening in the church. So I thank you for listening or watching, as the case may be. And I thank you so much for taking this to heart because God will do a great thing in your life. And I look forward to seeing the fruit from it. So until next week, goodbye. And God bless you and thank you once again.